as we were singing that last song and just thinking about uh, this weekend, being reminded as the start of football season gets kicked off that, gosh, that is, football is the biggest God in our world, I think. I mean, think about all the stadiums where people are surrounding this little ball and worshiping it over the weekend. And I think about myself as I'm watching Michigan lose to Notre Dame. I'm a Michigan fan, and it, it, was, it was sad yesterday. And I was, after the game, I'm thinking, I was talking to Cam, I was like, why do I get so invested in this stupid game? I never, I never even went to Michigan. <laughs> and, and I'm thinking about, gosh, how many people on a regular basis through the football season come around and just adore their team. And so it's good to come here this morning and be reminded that there'll be a day where I, I picture heaven, that there, in the New Jerusalem, there's going to be this just enormous stadium where we're going to someday sit together and stand together and worship together. And it won't be a ball that we're worshiping. We're going to be worshiping the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the guy. And we're going to see this sea of people that are just there because of the blood of the Lamb. And it will make watching a football game seem like just puny. I mean, why? Why would we do that? When we have the Lord of Lords and the Kings of Kings, so it's good to be here, reminded of who our true God is, not some football. All right, open up your Bibles, Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, if you've got one of our Bibles, it's page 959 that we're going to be in today, 959. If you do not own a Bible or if you've got an old Bible, you need a new one, please take one of ours with you. This is our gift to you. Page 959, Luke chapter 8. We've been walking through the book of Luke. In today's story, if I were to ask you, if, you, if you've been in church for a while, and I were, were to ask you, okay, what do you think like the strangest story in the Bible is? And You could come up with a lot of different str strange stories, but this one may top the list of strangest stories in all of the Bible. We're going to be talking about Jesus when he heals a demon-possessed man. In fact, there's numerous demons in this man, and he sends the demons into a herd of pigs, okay, and so it's, it's really weird, and so when, when, whenever you mention demons in church, there's a whole lot of different varieties of responses that you get. Uh, C.S. Lewis, there's a quote from C.S. Lewis that I, I really appreciate. He's got a good balance. Go, let's go ahead and put this up on the screen. C.S. Lewis said, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils, talking about demons and, and just the spiritual warfare that we, uh, that we see in our world. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist and a magician with the same delight. And so in our world, there are many people who look at people like us who, who believe in a spiritual world. They, 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 they don't believe in a spiritual world at all. At all. In fact, they think that those who believe in demons are weak-minded and they use demons as just a, a way to explain evil in this world. And so that's, that's one group of people. Now, on the flip side of that, we also have people in our culture that are so fascinated and so obsessed with spiritual warfare that they think everything's got a demon, okay? Their dog is barking in the middle of the night, and they think, okay, we got to cast out this demon. we got to need exorcist right here. 
And so you can go to both extremes. And C.S. Lewis very wisely points out that if, if the devil can't pull you down in disbelief, he's just as happy to push you overboard in a, an unhealthy fascination about him. Today's passage that we're reading here in Luke, this story affirms the biblical reality that there is a spiritual war going on, but it also does not encourage an unhealthy fascination. And so if you remember the context of what's going on, if you've been here with us, you know, okay, Luke has been writing this, uh, this gospel story to encourage us to increase our faith in Jesus, that we would be certain about what we've, what we've learned. And so we've learned that Jesus is way more than just a good teacher. He's, he's way more than just a helper, somebody that's concerned about us. He is the God of the universe who created everything, sustains everything. And so last week we saw his power and his authority over the natural world as he calms the storm. They're in a hurricane on a boat and he calms the storm. This week, Luke goes beyond that and shows us how Jesus is sovereign over the supernatural world, that even the demons listen to him. And so at the end of last week's story, you can look back at verse 25, and this is right after Jesus calms the storm. His disciples says, and they were afraid. And they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him? And I, I can't help to think that sometimes God just has a, a sense of humor. Because the, the irony of the story that we're taking a look at today is these disciples, they're asking, Who is this guy? Who is Jesus? They still haven't quite figured it out. And God gives them the answer through a demon-possessed man. This demon recognizes right away who Jesus is. And so we're going to pray one more time, and then I want to dive in to this story together. Father, you know our hearts better than we know them. And I, I plead with you right now that we would understand this story in such a way that it would move us to action that we would long to tell others about what you have done for us, that we would recognize the change in us because of your grace. And for those of us in this room, if there's people in this room that have never experienced your salvation, I pray that their eyes would be opened to know what's available to them through the gospel. For your glory, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, pick up in verse 26. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite of Galilee. So this would be on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons, plural, multiple demons possessing him. For a long time, this man, he had worn no clothes and had not lived in a house but among the tombs. <laughs> and so uh, just picture this, okay? And so for months, maybe years, this guy has been naked and alone living in a cemetery. And in Mark's version, he adds to it. He says this man would often cry out, and he would take stones and cut himself. 
And so this man is, is scarred, he's bloodied, he's grotesque. You can barely even look at this guy. In fact, this is what I picture him to look like. I, I, I picture him to look like Gollum from Lord of the Rings. Okay, kind of multiple personalities. He's just grotesque to look at. You can, I can barely watch the second Lord of the Rings because of this guy. And, and this is, and, I mean, just, just grotesque. Nobody wants to be around him. He's not loved by, by anyone. And when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said in a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. Can you imagine being one of the disciples in this moment? I mean, you've just gotten off a boat where in the nighttime you, you just walked away from a hurt, actually floated away from a hurricane. You come off that experience, you get off the boat, and immediately there's this golem-looking character running at you, falling at the feet of Jesus, screaming at Jesus. I mean, can you imagine being one of them? I'd be pretty freaked out, I think. And it's interesting that the, that the demon recognizes immediately who Jesus is. Even though the disciples haven't really figured out who he is, this demon knows Jesus because he's met Jesus before. The demons, if you don't know who they are, they are fallen angels. Uh, the Bible talks about them, especially in Isaiah, that uh, originally God creates the angels. And the most beautiful of the angels, Lucifer, which means bright morning star, became jealous of God, wanted to be worshipped like God. And so God says, no, I am the only God. And he throws Satan to earth. And Satan is able to... Uh, talk a third of the angels to come and follow him instead of God. And so these are the fallen angels. These are the demons that we see here in this passage. And it's interesting. Lucifer means bright morning star. Satan means accuser or adversary. And that's who the beautiful angel becomes, this adversary against God. One of the biggest difference between angels and humans, though, is that we're both fallen creatures. You think about it. We've both, angels have rebelled against God. We've rebelled against God also. But here's the difference. God never in his word even hints at angels having an opportunity to be redeemed by the blood of the Lord. There's no opportunity for them to, for repentance. And so they know their final destination is destruction. It's eternal torment. And so that's why he begs, are, are you here to torment me? In fact, Matthew's version, the, the demons cry out to Jesus, says, are you here to torment us before the appointed time? So they, they know where they're headed. Verse 29, for he had, Jesus had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. And so see, here you see the power of the demon, but you also see the power of Jesus. That this demon, all he can do in front of Jesus is go down to his feet and beg. And Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And the demon said, legion, for many demons had entered into him. Now, a Roman legion consisted of 6,000 men and 120 horsemen. This is not simply some one single puny demon that has taken control of this man. This is a whole host of evil spirits leering at Jesus through this poor man's wild eyes. 
verse 31, and they, they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Revelation 20 describes this abyss, this bottomless pit as the place reserved for Satan and his demons to be locked away until the final judgment someday. Now, the story's been strange up, to, up until this point. It's about to take weird to a whole new level, though. Verse 32, Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they, the demons, begged Jesus to let them enter these. And so he gave them permission. Now, if you're a Jew reading this, pigs are unclean animals. You, Pigs are detestable to you. And, and so you're reading this as a Jew, and you're thinking, no, oh, that's a good place for demons to go. Okay, you, you could care less about these pigs or, or what might happen to them. Now, this also maybe gives us a clue of the area that Jesus is in. This community that, he's, that they've gone to in this boat uh, is either, A, occupied by Gentiles, non-Jewish people that make a living herding pigs, or it's occupied by Jewish people that are rebellious and don't really care about God's law, and they're trying to sell these pigs to the Gentiles and make money off of it. Okay, Luke doesn't really say. We don't, we don't really know for sure. Let's move on in our story, though. Verse 33, Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. So evidently, pigs do not fly. Luke doesn't explain why Jesus allows this to happen. We don't even know what happens to the demons after the pigs die. And that doesn't seem to be his concern. Look, Luke doesn't seem to be concerned about the financial impact that this would have on the herdsmen. But you can imagine the scene that it would create. I mean, it's not every day that you see a herd. In fact, I think it's Matthew's version that talks about this. This herd would have been about 2,000 pigs. Not every day that you see 2,000 pigs jump off a cliff and com commit uh, swinicide. And so... That was for you, Eli. That's a bad dad. Eli would tell me that's not punny at all. That's terrible. All right, verse 34. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and they told it in the city and in the country. And then the people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus, and they found the man from whom demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and this is interesting. And they were afraid. I mean, what a testimony to the power of Jesus. I mean, this man once was naked, alone, grotesque, living in a cemetery. Just completely, I mean, nobody wanted to be around him. Nobody, nobody loved him. And all of a sudden, he's in his right mind. He's clothed. He's having a conversation with Jesus, listening to him at his feet. I mean, the power of Jesus is amazing. And it freaked everybody out. It freaked everybody out. And look at verse 36. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. What in the world frightened them? Luke doesn't really tell us here, but the, the scholars give two options. The first option is they... They looked at the pigs who had just died, and they had compassion for the herdsmen, and it was an economic fear. They were afraid that Jesus was going to come in and, and just ruin their, uh, he was going to take all their, anything that would provide for them. 
And, and so they love their pigs more than they love Jesus. So that's one option. The other option is that this, maybe this place had become so darkened by the demonic influences that they loved their lifestyle. And we don't know what their lifestyle was. Maybe it was sexual immorality. Maybe it was uh, gambling. Maybe it was, maybe the, it was just material possessions they loved. And they saw the change in this man. And they thought, gosh, we don't want Jesus to uproot our lives and, and change our lives. We don't know exactly. I think either way, those are both really good lessons for us. Because in America especially, we tend to fall into both of those traps where we love our money more than we love Jesus or we love our, our comfortable lifestyle more than we love Jesus. And so as soon as Jesus calls us to do something difficult, we, we kind of back off. Either way, these people have seen a miracle, an obvious miracle, but they reject Jesus. And so he got in the boat and he returned. Verse 38, the man from whom the demons had gone, begged that he might be with him. Because that's what you want to do. If you've been transformed by Jesus, you want to be with your Savior. But Jesus sent him away, which is really interesting. He said this, verse 39, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him which is really interesting to me because if you think about the other instances where a little bit of Jesus' power leaks out of him and he shows his authority, whether it's healing somebody or uh, just proclaiming who he truly is, he tends to hide his true identity or at least want to hide his true identity. For example, back in Luke chapter 5, after he had cleansed the, lip, the leper, he tells Tells him, say, don't tell anybody that I've cleansed you, but go straight to the, the priest. Later on in this next chapter, we're going to talk about this next week in Luke 8, he brings this girl back from the dead and it says that his parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Then in the next chapter, chapter 9 of Luke, when Jesus predicts his own death and his own resurrection, he charges his disciples, don't tell anybody about it. Over in Matthew 16, when Peter, he, he asks the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter declares, it's in that moment that Peter declares that you are the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus' initial response to Peter affirms that. He says, look, you're gonna, you are the rock upon which I'm going to build my church. The gates of Hades will not prevail against it. But then in the same breath, he turns to his disciples and he strictly charges the disciples, tell no one that he's the Christ. So why would he do this? Why would he hide his identity? And to understand, so scholars call this the messianic secret. And to understand why he would do this, you have to understand back then in first century Palestine, the Jews were expecting a Messiah, but they were expecting a Messiah that would be a king, that would be a political revolutionary, that would overtake the Roman domination that they've been experiencing. And so, for example, when they were given a choice to release either Jesus or Barabbas, who do they release? Barabbas, who's a political zealot. They wanted a political revolutionary or a political savior. And as you look back into the Old Testament, I can understand why they might think this, but 
what they were doing is they were reading the Old Testament text, kind of like we tend to read the Bible sometimes, where they were seeing what they wanted to see rather than paying attention to passages like Isaiah 53 that declares that God is, the Messiah is not going to be just a king, but he's also going to be a suffering servant. And so Jesus would keep his identity hidden to a point because he didn't want to encourage these misconceptions about who the Messiah would be because what it would do is if the Romans heard about it, it would bring upon the the wrath of the Roman Empire and he would potentially be killed before his time. And so it makes sense that he would hide, but he doesn't want to hide his identity forever. He tells his disciples eventually after the resurrection, go and tell everybody about who I am and what I've done. And so in this instance, what's going on? Why does he tell this man to go back to the city and tell everybody, well, evidently in this situation, this town must have not been very likely for them to be expecting a political revolutionary, which leads me to think this might have been a Gentile town. But, and we're not sure about that, but obviously he says, go and tell them what the Lord has done for you. Go home. I love Mark's version. He says, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. If you're taking notes, I'd encourage you to pull out your bulletin if you've got any, if you're taking notes. This is the heart of the passage. Again, the heart of the passage is not that Jesus just has power and authority over the natural world, but the heart of this passage is that Jesus has authority over the supernatural world. Which if, th- if you think about it, that's a glorious truth. We need, we need to recognize that in one being all. You don't have to walk around scared of Satan and his demons. And there's two responses that I think we should have because of this glorious truth. Number one is this, that we ought to give demons an appropriate attention. All right? You should have a healthy fear of demons, that there is a spiritual war that's going on. That, that, that there's a reality of that, and we should have a healthy fear, but there is no need to be consumed by that. Demons are powerful beings, but they pale in comparison to the power of Jesus. God has Satan on a leash. Think about the story of Job. Satan can do nothing to Job unless he has permission from God. Okay, and so here, that's why this demon, these demons, they, they have to beg Jesus. They, they, they have no power over Jesus. And so, yeah, we should study Satan and the schemes that he has for us. But I, I don't think this means we go around and every single week we have an exorcism, okay? Uh, I, I don't think we need to look at spiritual warfare that way. In fact, I think spiritual Demon possession, okay, like true demon possession where somebody, has lo- they just completely lose the ability to think on their own and, and act on their own and make decisions on their own where a demon truly possesses somebody, I think that's probably fairly rare. In fact, John Piper talks about this in one of his podcasts, and John Piper's been in ministry for many, many years, and he says in all of his years of ministry, he's only experienced one time where he believed that there was actually a person that he saw that was truly demon-possessed. The the stories that I hear about demon possession primarily happen on the mission field where the gospel is being proclaimed for the first time. 
But in our culture, I, I think it's fairly normal for you to go through your whole life and maybe never experience and see somebody that's been truly demon-possessed. Now, that being said, I do believe that demonic influence is prevalent, is everywhere. That We see that affecting every single one of us, which is why I, I think the Bible teaches that the normal way for us to engage in spiritual warfare is not to constantly be holding exorcisms, but go ahead and if you want to, you can turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to put this up on the screen also. This is the Apostle Paul writing a letter to Timothy, preparing him for, for ministry and spiritual warfare. And notice what he says to Timothy. This is how we ought to normally engage in spiritual warfare. He says this in verse 24, chapter 2 of 2 Timothy, starting in verse 24. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses, listen to this, and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. And you, so you see that the ordinary way that we engage in spiritual warfare is not to try to cast out demons from everybody, but it's to teach the gospel faithfully with humility and gentleness. If you think about it, who is Satan? Satan is a liar and he's a murderer. And so to combat Satan, what you need to be is somebody who tells the truth and loves people. Revelation 12, 11, they overcame the devil by the blood of the Lamb. And so take seriously the threat and the potential influence that Satan can have on your life and the life of people around you. But remember, if you've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, the spirit that is inside of you makes any other unclean spirit, any other demon, look like an ant. They are puny. They are nothing compared to the Spirit of God that is inside of you. So you need not fear being possessed by a demon. You need not fear Satan harming you if you've trusted in Christ. You can be influenced by him, and you, can, you should know his schemes. But you need not be consumed with fear about him. All right, so the second way that I believe that we should respond in light of this story and the truth that Jesus has the authority over the supernatural is that you should go and tell others how much the Lord has done for you. This is what he tells this man who's been healed. And if we understand Scripture, especially Ephesians chapter 2, we have all at some level been influenced by demons, by the schemes of Satan. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following who? The prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, were by nature children of wrath, but like the rest of mankind. So he's saying that, look, even if you were raised in church and you, you feel like you've never had a rebellious bone in your body, even you have been influenced and you have been under the hold and captive 
by Satan until God gives you a new heart and you're captivated by him instead. All of us are considered children of wrath. And he says in verse 4, but God, being rich in his mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Listen, if you've trusted in Christ, in other words, if, if you recognize that you're a sinner, you rebelled against God, your creator, and you deserve his wrath, and you're, you recognize that your only hope is that you could be forgiven by God through the blood of Jesus Christ and totally depending on him, totally trusting in him to save you. If that's you and you've trusted him, him for salvation and you want to follow him as Lord, that means he, di- he didn't just give you a ticket out of hell. He's done that so you could be different, so you could be, you could be changed so that you could, rec- be, you could recognize that by the blood of the Lamb, you were once dead in your sins and in your trespasses, but now God has made you alive in Christ. That you were once an enemy of God's. Now you are His precious child. That you were a child of wrath, but now you're a child of God. That you were once an orphan without hope, but now you've been adopted by the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Once you were a slave to sin, but now you've been freed to be a servant of righteousness. Once you walked in your sin, following the course of this world, following the prince of this world, but now you are seated in Christ in the heavenly places. You once lived in the passions and for the passions of your flesh, but now you live by God's grace with a passion for his glory. You once were lost, but now you're found. You were once blind, but now you see. You were once in darkness, but now you're in marvelous light. And so go and tell the world what God has done for you. That's the call that he gives us. Why would we not want to tell others what Christ has done for us? Jesus says, go proclaim to the world how he has had mercy on you. Do you see why? We have, if you're going through the membership process, you know that we have you write your testimonies out now. And that's not for us just to get information. That's because we recognize and we understand that you need to be able to articulate how God has impacted you and what he's done for you because people will connect to your story way better than they connect just to a list of facts. Now, you need to know the facts of the gospel and you should incorporate that into your story. But I know my experience... Grew up in church, knew the stories of the Bible. And when I got to college, somebody did sit me down and explain the facts of the gospel that I was a sinner in need of salvation and that Jesus Christ died for my sins and I needed to trust in him. But it was really when they started sharing their stories, how God had impacted them, that I fell in love with the gospel. The gospel became significant. I started treasuring what Christ has done, not just in their life, but in my life also, and what he's protected me from and what what he's calling me to. Your story is powerful. And so don't be ashamed of what's in your past. I mean, if God has, if anybody had reason to be ashamed of their past, I mean, this guy had reason. 
I mean, he walked around naked in a cemetery. Everybody knew him and was scared of him. But Jesus says, go and tell everybody what God has done. So it doesn't matter how many bad decisions you've made in your life and what you've been addicted to or who you've been married to or what, what you've gone through in your life. If God has redeemed you by the blood of the Lamb, you've got a story that is powerful and somebody will be connect to it. And your story will connect with people that I will never be able to connect with. And so Jesus says, go and tell your story that God has redeemed you, that he's had mercy on you. And so three practical steps I want us to take as a church in light of this. Number one is this, fan the flame. Okay, so in our backyard, I'm super cheap, and so we wanted a fire pit, but I didn't want to spend money on a fire pit, and so we had this little pad of cement, and we had some leftover bricks that were there when we bought the house, and so I built this fire pit, and I, put, I just stacked bricks around it, but I made it too high. And so if you've been over to our house trying to <laughs> make a fire, what do you have to do? We have this, we have a lid, and Jacob goes like this constantly until the fire gets going, and it takes forever, because you got to keep, because there's not enough oxygen getting to the, to the fire. So here's the thing. If from the time that you're born, there's a fire in your heart, before you're even a believer, before you trust in Christ, there's a fire in your heart that you're constantly flaming because you want that fire to grow. But it, like we see in Ephesians 2, that fire is really a passion of the flesh. It's a passion for the things of this world. We're looking to, to be uh, satisfied. We're looking for joy somewhere. And so we look everywhere, whether it's in football or, or money or clothes or people or kids or whatever it is. It can be ministry. But we're constantly looking to to fan that flame. But when Jesus gives you a new heart, there's a new fire. There's a second fire that's put into your heart. Now, unfortunately, that old fire is still there. And it wants to be flame, or it wants to be fanned. But the new fire is there. And if you, fl- if you fan that flame, you, you've only got one fan. Okay, so you're either going to fan your old fire with the passions for this, this world, or you're going to fan the new fire that has, uh, gives you a passion for God and a compassion for people. And so you can only fan one thing at a time. So the more you fan the new fire, the old fire starts to diminish. But if you go back and you start fanning the old flames, you start looking at stuff that you're not supposed to look at, and you start thinking about football and, 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 and material possessions and, and being secure or successful, whatever it is, you start fanning that flame your fire and your passion for God starts to diminish when you're not fanning the right flame. And so I want you to think back. If you're a believer, think back. What are some things in your life where God, God just used it to stoke the fire for His glory? Think back. Maybe it's been a sermon that you listened to, or maybe it's been a song that you just grabbed hold of, or maybe it was a, a conference that you went to. Maybe it was a just a conversation that you had. Maybe it's reading. For me, that's a lot of times that's what it is for me. It's, it's reading good biographies or reading God's word and, and just be, being blown away. I would encourage you, fan that flame, whatever it is. I encourage you to read scripture in, in, in a way where you're looking for your soul to be satisfied. Memorize it meditate on it, fast. I mean, when you fast, what happens? When you're fasting, 
for the right reasons, with the right motivation, for the glory of God. And all, every time you feel your, that stomach, that hunger pain, it points you back to God and remembering what He's done for you and remembering His promises, His character. I would encourage you, study the doctrines of heaven and hell. Uh, the, the more you study heaven and what it's going to be like, the more hope you're going to have for the future. And the more you study hell, the more compassion you're going to have for the lost. I would encourage you to study that. And then get with people. Maybe, maybe for you, what God has used to fan your flame is, is other people. Because sometimes you go through seasons in your life where you don't even feel like you, you have no desire to fan that flame for God. And you need somebody else to fan it for you. That's why this is so important. That's why your missional community is so important. Those one-to-one relationships you have where you're discipling one another. You should fan the flames of your church family. Okay, so number one, fan the flame. Number two, get trained. All right, get trained. Often I talk to people in the church, and they don't share the gospel because they, they say things like, well, I, don't, I just don't feel like I'm going to have all the answers. I don't know how to express the gospel to people. One, just share your story. And two, get to understand the facts. There should be some booklets close by. What is the gospel? Take that home. Read over it. It's a great, simple explanation of how to explain the gospel. Uh, we've got tracks, the three circle tracks. Read books that explain the gospel. The more you read it, the more you get it into your head, the easier it is going to be to talk about it. Ask questions at your missional community. Here, ask questions about the gospel if there's things that you don't understand. And then you've got to practice. If you want to be, be confident about talking about the gospel, you've got to practice sharing the gospel. Practice with your cats. Practice with the mirror. Practice with your friends. And then eventually, you, the more you practice in your relationship, it's just going to naturally start to come out. All right, so number one, fan the flame. Number two, get trained. Lastly, go proclaim. We've got to go. We, we can't, most unbelievers this morning did not wake up and say, hmm, where should I go to church? Okay? Most unbelievers this morning, they, they were not waking up thinking, wow, I wonder, I wonder if their music is really cool or if their coffee tastes really good. All right? They don't care anything about that. We've got to go to them. We talk about three different types of evangelism often. We talk about like cold call evangelism, like going door to door, knocking on and just sharing the gospel. I think we should do that. Okay? I, don't, I don't necessarily think it's the most effective way, but you know what it does? It causes you to practice sharing the gospel. And if you go and do that, and if you can share the gospel with a stranger like that, it is way easier to share the gospel with your friends and your family and your neighbor and the coworkers you are around all the time. The second type of evangelism is event evangelism, which is what we're going to be doing this coming weekend, um, Saturate Mount Washington. So uh, one of the things that we're going to be doing at Saturate Mount Washington is a family festival. I'm going to encourage all of you to be either involved with that or we've got another group that's going to Sunrise Children's Services. Would love for people to do that. There's also other opportunities, prayer walking, uh, doing physical labor, working on some projects at the schools in Mount Washington. But I would love for every one of us to be in, involved with that at some capacity. And this is an opportunity for us to go and we're going to draw people from the community to try to build relationships so that we can not just give them a fun time, but so that we can share the gospel with them. And so we're going to talk more about that later, but I would encourage you, get involved. This coming Saturday, we're going to, we're going to just, uh, we need tons of help. In fact, so I did this on faith. 
hoping and praying that we will have enough people here to help serve. So we sent 600 invitations out to the kids at Pleasant Grove Elementary. And so if we don't have volunteers to help, we're going to have 600, fr- 600 little kids very disappointed. Okay, a little peer pressure, a little guilt trip there. But anyhow, please, if you have not, it, even if you have stuff going on Saturday, cancel it and come be part of the Family Fest. All right, that's my plug for Saturate Mount Washington. The third, and this is the one I really wanted to talk about today. And this is relational evangelism, or how Tim Keller puts it, network evangelism. Go ahead and put this, and you'll see this in your bulletins. There should be a a chart there. And so here's my challenge for all of us today. I challenge you to write down five people that you know that are unbelievers in each one of these five networks, and do one of these five things for them over the next month. Okay, so you've got your family network, you've got your, your friends network, you've got your neighborhood network, you've got your work or school network, and you've got your, I, we had, okay, the shopping network, just the people that, when you go to Kroger, maybe you are intentional about going to see the same cashier, or maybe it's your barber, or the person that cuts your hair, the, the people that you see, and you, your acquaintances with them, uh, but write their names down. And maybe you can't figure out five in one area. We'll add another one to one of the other areas. Make it six in that area. But then I want you to do one of five things with as many people as you can over the next month. Either pray for them, pray for their salvation. Encourage, invite them. Invite them to come over and have dessert at your house. Invite them to, to church. Invite them to, to the family festival. But invite them. Serve them in some way. Bring them cookies. Do something that would encourage them. Maybe it's just a a quick text. Resource them, okay? Uh, If you've got good Christian books that you can give them, resource them, uh, pamphlets, anything. Resource them with information that will help answer some of their questions. And then most importantly, share the gospel with them. I would encourage every one of us, if every one of us would take this challenge seriously, can you imagine the impact we would have in a month? The number of people that would, would hear the gospel, that would be prayed for, that would be served and loved, I think it would transform our church. And it would be a spark that would hopefully light a fire in our community for the glory of God. So I want to be a church that, that fans the flame, and that we're serious about getting trained, and then we go and we proclaim because of all that Christ has done for us. Let's pray that God would help us. Father, we recognize that you have called us to something that is not just difficult, but impossible in our own means, under our own power. And so we plead with you by your spirit to invade our hearts and motivate us that we, that we would be so excited about the gospel that it would just come out of us naturally. Thank you, Lord, for shedding your blood for our souls, that we would be forgiven and changing our lives. Help us to proclaim that message to a world that desperately needs good news. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're a